You're listening to a DM podcast. I was going to surprise you with a story because I, I always challenge myself to talk to one person. Oh wow! Who, who knows the person? Yeah. My intent on this is only to make people look good, feel comfortable. I've got no interest in a gotcha or anything. But so, but I yes. talk to people and I and I explain that. I said I'm calling you because you know Gillard or you know Will Anderson. Yeah, and, yeah. And I'm going to interview them on Five Alive. So what? What would you want to tell me if I was doing that? Blah, blah, blah. Anyway, I spoke to this person who was a very, very good friend of yours who was hilarious. <laughs> well, I had, I've got so much stuff. But, but one of them, it, it, she was extraordinarily nice about you. She said, <laughs> she goes, she's wonderful, but she has the loudest voice of anyone I know. It's so and true. And I can't take her to small restaurants. That's <laughs> <laughs> so true. Welcome to The Five of My Life with me, Nigel Marsh. As an author, ad man and theologian, I've always been interested in people's stories. Not just those with a high profile, but people from all walks of life, regardless of fame. Which is why I created this show. Each guest who takes The Five of My Life challenge chooses a favourite film, book, song, place and possession. They tell me their choices in advance so I can research them, but they don't tell me why they've chosen them. That's the subject of our conversation. It's amazing what you can learn when discussing someone's five choices. I hope you enjoy listening to the show as much as I enjoy making it. Over her 20-year career, two-time Walkley award-winning journalist Nance Haxton has always had a passion for justice. As the self-styled wandering journo, Nance relentlessly travels the country to find the stories that need to be told. Across her three podcasts and numerous published articles, Nance delights in giving a voice to people who wouldn't normally have access to the media. So, Nance Haxton, welcome to Five of My Life. Thank you, Nigel. I feel very chuffed that you asked me. Thank you. Well, I, I have to ask you, to start with, how did you find the process of preparing? Oh, it was pretty hard for uh, a journo like me who's always trying to find probably the middle ground in things. So actually having to make a decision on what my favourite five things in my life were was uh, quite an ordeal, but but fun. Actually really good to reflect and think about, you know, what might actually be your favourite song to sing in the car. It may not be your favourite song of all time and why that would be. And yeah, so it's been really meaningful. Thank you. Well, you were a nightmare, a lovable nightmare, because you kept on sending me um, different options. And I, I know, it's terrible. I kept on having to discipline you, going, we've been doing this for five years. We're never going right. to ever change the format. Is no, you have right. to land on one, not two. <laughs> and also that there's something that I'm not sure I explain well enough to people, which is it, it isn't necessarily your favourite it's, That's right. It's a favourite, and, yes. and and you are you are a natural storyteller, and you are very deft at getting other people's stories out. Your wonderful body of work. Oh, thank you. This process might be a little bit uncomfortable because it's about your stories. Mm, it's so true. So we're going to see how the journo. Have you got your armour up, <laughs> or have you got your armour down? No, and this is the interesting thing, isn't it? I think I've I've had to go, look, if I'm going to do this properly, I really need to reveal a bit about myself. So, journo uh, indeed, but, yeah, sh to show a bit of the motivations behind the person. And I'm always about trying to just show people that journos are real people. We're not all 
horrible and we, d- we don't have a great rep in the community. We're right up there with the tax department, but uh, I do try. Well, here we go. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll give it a go and let's, let's see how we fare. You have chosen everyone's fake orgasm classic, um, <laughs> When Harry Met Sally from 1989. Indeed. Uh, tell us why you have chosen that. That was probably one of the easiest choices for me, I think, because it's a movie that stayed with me through life. Um, it started as just when I was a, a sort of an emerging teenager and trying to figure out boys and particularly after being in a in a pretty uh, closeted girls' school for my high school years, and I thought that this was just like it's all laid out here, Nance. This is this is how it works. You just have to go to New York, find a great best friend, and uh, you know, to then figure out for yourself whether really men and women can be friends, or whether you know, as Billy Crystal so eloquently through the movie fig- tries to figure out, perhaps no, no, they always inevitably will become lovers. But it's evolved with me since then. It took me to New York. It's taken me so many places in my mind and I always just I think there's part of me that just always hoped I would find that partner in life that I could be that relaxed with well gosh I mean there are so many avenues that we could go down now so so the first thing I I have to ask is so how was it for you with the whole the whole boy girl thing did you have a happy uh, romantic entry into that world of adulthood or was it you know disastrous first love or whatever I've actually been pretty lucky and through all of my adventures through, uh, you know, fairly average um, but but beautiful suburban kind of childhood to going into the outback, um, I feel really lucky that the, the, the men that I've met, I've been really blessed and I look back on every one of them and, you know, they're far from perfect, of course, but, you know, I'm not perfect, but I've learnt something in my life that I take forward with me and that they've taught me something about myself as well. So, no, I feel really lucky. From my, my first boyfriend at university, who um, I think I made made him watch when Harry met Sally with me so he could understand, you know, this this integral part of myself. Um, and we were together for such a long time and he became a really successful comic book artist and he really helped me on my journey to become an excellent journalist that was really always the dream and that one day I might be at a Walkley Awards and so it was really wonderful to have a friend to walk through that with me. Well, so, so you mentioned awards. Is you didn't just get one of them; you've got two of them. But also, <laughs> um, you mentioned New York. Is would you mind mm. telling us a little bit about the awards that you picked up there for New York Radio? Was that right? Yes, that's right. The International Radio Awards. So the first time I went to New York, I was actually 24, funnily enough, Nigel. So it was, I I think I thought at that stage I'd saved all my money through my cadetship and this was going to be the big trip. I'd always dreamed of doing this trip and ticking all these places off my list and that I'd never really need to go holidaying again. That was what I uh, had in my 24-year-old mind. And that was the first time I went to New York and went to Central Park and found all those places from the movie. But uh, I was really lucky to be able to go back then about 10 years after that to uh, get a New York radio award and then to go back a couple of years after that for another one for a couple of audio documentaries that but that don't written. just tell us that you went to get them tell us what they were for woman what did oh. you get the don't don't be shy what, what were the awards for uh, the first um award was for an audio documentary i did on Stradbroke island and 
Stradbroke Island is this beautiful island paradise, basically in Morton Bay off Brisbane. But it's uh, had a bit of a mixed history. It had sand mining for 60 years. And I really wanted to go into how it would come out to its new chapter because sand mining came to an end. And uh, how will this community move on? There was a lot of talk about will they be able to survive on tourism alone? Looking back now, that was sort of six or seven years ago. It's it's going really well. It's been a, a difficult phase, but it was wonderful for me to go and speak to First Nations people about the journey that they've had to be recognised as the traditional owners of that area and also, what what is the future for this Minjerabar, this island in the sun, this this absolutely stunning little place? So, and it was great to be acknowledged for. I've always tried to just get as many broad views as possible in all of my stories. That way, people I think can listen, make up their own minds um, when they've got as much information as they can. And what was the topic of the of the second award? That was for. I'm just looking at it now. Actually, it's on my bookshelf. It was for blackbirding. So this was, again, I think a story that came from almost my childhood. It's funny how some stories really bubble along in your life, and you just wait for that moment. I think Nigel, like I have this theory that that stories they they find you and that you can bat them off or you can accept the challenge. A bit, bit like five of my life, I think, Nigel, <laughs> where blackbirding, I was always aware of it. You, you may have heard of it, of course, the Australian South Sea Islanders, as they are known now, were kidnapped basically and brought to Australia in the early 1900s to work on the cane fields and establish farms uh, right down the East Coast. And it was just something I'd always was aware of uh, in primary school. But I felt that as I grew older, it's almost like that knowledge was being lost. People weren't talking about it as much. And I thought, there's got to be a way into this to find out what is the legacy of all of these people that were brought out here. And so that was the beginning of of that story. And I went up to Bundaberg to interview some of the, the beautiful Australian South Sea Islander people there. They were so generous and so insightful walking through a grave outside of Bundaberg that was unmarked because back then they were put on the outskirts of town and so they couldn't even have graves that were marked and just the the ordeal and the process of going through and finding out who these people are, writing down and getting this history known. So, again, I just felt really privileged to be able to help people tell that story and it was amazing to go to New York and be recognised for that. There's a very strong theme throughout uh, all your work that I have seen which is you you give a voice to people who wouldn't traditionally have a voice uh, otherwise and um, which is a very attractive quality. Uh, Your master's was on the death of investigative journalism. (laughs) You've always always obviously uh, hankered after uncovering the stories that other people aren't uncovering. I think so. And to just try and figure out how do we how do we tell these stories? I think as much as I love journalism, I don't think there's ever been a time where there's plenty of work or <laughs> plenty of opportunities. It's like, how do we uh, encourage investigative journalism in this? And it's even more so now. I mean, my master's was, goodness, 20 years ago or so. But shrinking newsrooms, all this incredible pressure from social media and uh, press freedom, particularly in Australia, I think there's some really interesting 
debates about that and yeah, how do we encourage it to thrive because this is such a central tenet of our democracy, really. Yeah, well, listen, good on you. We need, we need more like you. Your second choice on Five My Life. It's always the book. We're going to yes. 2019, Julia Baird's Phosphorescence. I've got a copy of my copy of it here. Beautiful. Um, tell us um, why you chose that on Five My Life. Uh, I'm, I'm a terrible reader, I have to confess. I'm afraid, Nigel. I, I think by the time I've read my newspapers and magazines and kept up with all of the, the websites for my stories, that by the time I get to bed, I'm actually usually pretty done. But I'm not one of these people that, oh, my mum just loves being lost in a book. But... There are occasionally books that come across uh, my path, and this was one of them. Uh, a beautiful friend gave it to me for my 50th, actually, and put in a lovely little inscription that she felt that I was phosphorescent, and this, this was a, a, a very apt book for me to read, and so that probably gave me a good hook to get into it. But uh, Julia Baird's writing is just so insightful and beautiful, and I think she's so just so open and honest about her own health struggles. And I just love that central concept through the book of finding the wonder in the ordinary. Um, that, yes, going to New York is fabulous fun and, you know, I'd, I'd often dream of living there. But you know what? We're surrounded by the wonder that that we just have to go out and, and, and find it and immerse ourselves in it. I was really struck by the similarity in, in our lives. In some senses, she had that real struggle with her Christian faith in her 20s, and that's probably something that I related to, and trying to find that that sense of religious wonder in in the world around us, I think, is is a great lifelong quest. So, yeah, it's actually a book that I've read a couple of times and there's not many in my short little uh, attention span that, that get that, I'm afraid, Nigel, but uh, I feel very lucky to have come across that book. T- tell us about your religious journey. Did you we, did you grow up in a family of faith? Not really. I think my, my beautiful brother, who's got uh, quite a profound intellectual disability, I think that has always made me quite open from a really young age as to the questions of what the meaning of life is. And, you know, when you've got someone in your life who struggles with autonomy and you know, trying to just help them as much as you can. You really wonder what your own journey is meant to be. And so I think religion has come in and out of that. My mum and dad weren't particularly religious, but I got involved in the youth group when I was at high school, the local youth group, and it was wonderful and probably very meaningful right through from the first boyfriend through um, my 20s. But I just think as I've got older, perhaps I've had less time, but going to the outback, I've just found other ways of seeing beautiful landscapes and that beautiful sense of country that I've learnt from First Nations people. So I think I just lost my way. It's almost like I just grew out of it. There wasn't really a specific time, Nigel. It just faded as as I got older but it's still there in the background so you never know I might sort of explore that aspect of myself again I wrote down quite a few quotes from the from the book mm. um, when you were Jack we're going to come on and talk about Ashley but uh, your, your brother but he, she quotes uh, two people wonderfully one is Viktor Frankl uh, if there is meaning in life at all then there must be a meaning in suffering which is a pretty thought-provoking notion absolutely 
And then the other from Martin Luther King, which I loved it. Life's most persistent question is, what are you doing for others? Absolutely. Isn't that incredible? You go, wow. And Martin Luther King, I actually had a poster of him on my bedroom wall. I'm not joking. (laughs) Um, So when I read that, I just thought, oh, Julia, wow. I feel like you're my soul sister, even though we've never met. And I've always been a fan of those sort of profound quotes to really guide you through life. It's funny how they can come into your you know, perspective at, at really crucial times. She used a word that I'd never heard before that is now one of my favourites. So you know Schadenfreude? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and, and she coined Fraudenfreude. <laughs> And isn't that wonderful? Isn't that wonderful? Rather than thinking, oh, bloody hell, Nance has won another award in New York. Why haven't I? You go, go, Nance. Yay. You've won a second Walkley. Woohoo. Rather than where's my Walkley. It's a lovely. Fraudenfreude. It's a wonderful, open way to go through life. And I've always, it mirrors my perspective on stories. You know, I never wanted to be that bang down the door kind of political journo that was cutthroat and had to get the story at all costs. In my mind, stories are limitless, Nigel. It's just a matter of us going to find them. You don't have to go and take someone else's. Like, just get up off your bum and talk to people and those stories will come to you. I also think there's, there's something like, what is your intent where I see some stories, I mean, I won't mention the mastheads, where, where it, it's to be cruel, mm-hmm. right? And it's exactly. to play into people's schadenfreude or the, or the, the darker side of their personality, where yes. you, one can choose without in any way being less uh, professional and investigative to go, I, I, my intent isn't to divide. My intent, my intent is to, you know, find out. But, but at the end of the day, I'd like the world to be slightly better me having broken the story about Stradbroke Island. Not not slightly worse, just <laughs> so, you know, people be entertained and, and educated, but also the, the outcome at the end of it is... Oh, it's so true. And yeah. constructive criticism is a beautiful thing in life, I think, Nigel. I've always felt that it's, it's lacking in a lot. Maybe it was the newsrooms that I uh, kind of did my cadetship and, and grew up in, which were fairly hostile environments there, um... Our Gen Zs wouldn't put up with any of that rubbish these days. But, yeah, I, I remember thinking, if there's anything I'm going to take to, out of this and all these editors yelling at me to get this story, I'm going to make sure that my stories are constructive, despite them, basically. <laughs> yeah, fantastic. Well, we're moving uh, back in time to the mid-70s, 1976 to be precise, uh, to your song that is going to be added to the uh, Five My Life Spotify playlist. You are the Dancing Queen by ABBA. Yes. Oh, I love the idea of your playlist, Nigel. It's so great. And the next time I go on a big Outback adventure, I will definitely be putting that. And, and, and can, can I make a suggestion when you do is when you get to the ones you think bloody hell what's this it is stick with it because that's yes. the point of the podcast so when the electronic choir comes on when the 24 minute Jethro Tull track comes on you know <laughs> stick with it stick with it because it's going to make your drive slightly more interesting <laughs> and yes well look forward to pumping that out of the speakers in, in Mildred, my cantankerous combi. But yes, Dancing Queen, that that's definitely a childhood memory that, that I 
hold on to very dearly. I think it's probably one of my earliest memories, actually, is myself and my brother Ashley dancing in the lounge room at my parents' place where they still live in Mount Gravatt. Uh, and that just that, that love that we both had for ABBA that's, uh, and that how music can overcome so many things at that stage. I don't think he was really talking a great deal because of the intellectual disability. So we could sing together. And in fact, Abba basically taught him how to talk. So he'd try and keep up with the lyrics that were moving really fast. And and to this day, he still loves Abba. And when he's been in hospital, we've, we've played him an Abba, you know, um, playlist. So to, to cheer him up. So uh, I, it's just a dear memory. He was always Frida and I was Anna and we just had a wonderful time. For people who don't know, so, so for a, a listener who knows literally nothing about you or Ashley, would you mind uh, explaining Ashley's situation? Yes, so he's got an intellectual disability and autism. He uh, unfortunately had a reaction to the triple antigen vaccine when he was quite young, about 18 months. So was in hospital for a long time after that. So, um, and he's still with us today. I like to call him small business Ashley. He employs four wonderful people uh, through the NDIS who one of them has been with him for 15 years. He contributes so much to society. And, you know, even though he doesn't work or any of the traditional concepts of what achievements are, he's helped me to have a, a good philosophical perspective on life. And uh, he was really my motivation to be a journalist from a very young age. I remember from about nine, that was my focus because I think I just realised that the world is not always a very just place. Nigel and I wanted to communicate to people uh, why that was. You know, I was very frustrated at that point that people weren't really willing to listen to Ashley. It's not so much an issue now, although it's not perfect, but I do feel like humankind is evolving somehow. That's the way I'm, that Ashley is treated when we go out to the coffee shops and things like that is much more respectful than when we used to go grocery shopping and people would get very frustrated with him. That was always a bit of, it was just so trying for my poor mum, trying to get grocery shopping done with, with Ashley in tow and it was such a stressful situation for him. And uh, it's just, it's wonderful to see that these days he is treated a lot better than he was. Is, is he wheelchair bound? No, but he, um, he did have a fall a couple of years ago and broke his hip. So he's not terribly mobile, but he can, he can walk. And, you know, at various times in his life, he's worked at um, uh, workshops, as they were known back then, sheltered workshops. But at the moment, he's quite happily at home and with his beautiful support workers who might take him out to get some, go to the movies or get some lunch. I sometimes think he's the happiest person I know, Nigel. I think his life is very simple. He's fought so hard for the beauty that he has around him, which is his, as he calls it, his brand new red house. He lives in a little housing commission house about a kilometre from mum and dad. And he fought really hard for that. And the only way he knew how, he just kept running away basically until we would go to the end of the train line and find him. And eventually we were able to to get him on this housing commission list and, and find him a house. So he's worked really hard to get the life that he wanted. And I really admire that. And, and how was it for your mum and dad? 
Yeah, it was pretty tough for them. And I think it, this almost loops back again to phosphorescence too. I think it echoed beautifully what I've learned from my parents, which is that you can choose to be happy. I always had a sense from that young age that I was here to help with Ashley, here to make life as easy as possible because I could see they had an awful lot on their plate. But they are still together. Um, so many marriages break up, unfortunately, when children come along with profound disabilities. It's, that's just a fact. Uh, that's just what I've seen growing up as well with Ashley's friends. But mum and dad have shown me that you can find happiness and bliss in the audience ordinary and in the small achievements and you shouldn't be in a rush because then you miss them. Your husband, 15 years? Yes, that's right. Where did you meet him? Oh, the poor man. We met, I'd just sworn off dating journos, actually, Nigel. I said, no, they're, they're all, you know, all these male journos, they just don't get it. I'm not doing this anymore. Then, of course, I met Andrew, who was the, uh, a reporter with The Australian at that point, and we just saw each other at a lot of press conferences. So, uh, at that point, he was doing a lot of reporting on the grisly Snowtown murders. Ooh. So, uh, we would take great joy in actually being able to have a bit of a giggle outside so, and give him a bit of a break from that harrowing ordeal. Yeah, and then we eventually um, met up. I, I moved into Adelaide. This was when I was living in Adelaide and got a nice little flat by the beach at Glenelg and uh, he was in the local pub. Uh, he had a State of Origin shirt on. So in Adelaide, that's a fairly unusual thing. He had the beautiful maroon Queensland jersey on and I thought, Oh, that's that's pretty that's pretty unusual. I go, oh, it's Andrew. I'll go and have a chat to him. So to this day, he still calls it his lucky shirt because that was really the beginning of of it all, Nigel. Yeah, oh, I love it. And and one son, <laughs> Ronan. That's is that right? right. Yeah. Little Ronan. Yes, he uh, he is uh, not so little. He's actually he's thirteen years old, and he's already half an inch taller than Andrew. So he's our big beautiful boy, and he's just got through to the the district's competition, throwing discus and such a, just a strong young man. But uh, yeah, very proud of him. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, we're now, we're now moving to your fourth choice, which is your place. And you've mentioned it before. You clearly have a deep love for New York, which is your choice on Five My Life. Tell us about that. <laughs> it was a pretty easy choice in that it's just always in the back of my mind. I, I wish I had a beautiful benefactor in life, Jane Austen style, who could fly me over to New York once a year and I could refresh my wardrobe, Nigel. It's just not quite the same doing it online. It just makes me sad. Um, but yeah, just... I've never had a bad experience in New York, even when I was 24, and that was really when it was the, the, the high crime kind of days with Giuliani was mayor, and uh, I think my poor mum and dad must have had an absolute heart attack that I was going through New York on my own, but I ended up meeting beautiful people in the, in the youth hostel and going ice skating at the Rockefeller Centre and um, sort of huddling together through a blizzard when none of the subways worked. It just seems such a magical city where anything is possible. You know, you kind of think that it can't be like that, that, that this is just some myth that has evolved. But there is something incredibly fun and wonderful possibilities that that happen when you're there um, and just uh, <laughs> I think the random sort of adventures that I've had and that I've actually survived on that that first trip I remember going down to the subway and 
I, I didn't have any money in my wallet, which was a fairly common practice for me as a 24-year-old in Brisbane, but maybe not so wise in New York. So <laughs> I was trying to get through. I put my last quarter into the wrong little turnstile to get through to the subway and I was trying to explain to the security guy that uh, I, I don't have any money and I, I put my last one and uh, this big queue of people were forming behind me and then I was starting to cry and then this woman just came out of the blue <laughs> and um, can I swear on you five can. of my life and she said can't you see she's from another fucking country just let the girl through you know <laughs> and I'm, I'm bawling my eyes out getting on the subway and she came and sat next to me and she gave me ten dollars no. And she said, to get anything done in this country, you've got to swear. I'm sorry, I just had to do that. But <laughs> uh, never travel in this city without money again. And I've still always, to this day, got a $1 uh, US note in, in the back of my wallet just to remind myself to to always be kind and look out for people. Yeah, what a fantastic story. I, I share your view of New York where if you weren't brought up there and if you don't live there the very notion of new york the the concept just just because of all the media literature tv shows whatever else is is kate and i went there for our 25th wedding anniversary oh, and, and, wonderful. And, it, and it just <laughs> it just felt unbelievably special because I'm, I'm sure if you live there you think so what i'm i'm jogging around the reservoir but i'm going holy crap this is where dustin hoffman you know yes. <laughs> every every single even the steam coming out from the pavement yes. so that you just go yeah, it's stinky as it is just wonderful it's a fairy yeah. tale a complete <laughs> it's, it's sort of like the old dear old woody allen's love affair with it i i can in some senses which is obviously logically utter rubbish it, <laughs> it feels like the capital of the world it really does oh absolutely which, which is grossly culturally insensitive and and seeing it in the fall and again julia baird mentions that that she lived in new york for a while and that that was her favorite time of year but that took me to when harry met sally yeah. and just those stunning shots you know there was beautiful cinematography in that in that movie of of the fall and to actually see that in real life and go truly this is magical this is something out of a fairy tale story it's uh, it's wonderful to be in that moment and soak it up w would you and andrew ever ever move that Oh, do you know, he's never been with me there. It's, isn't that interesting? I've only ever travelled there on my own. I would love to move there, but I think uh, I think my life is here with with the beautiful uh, not-so-little boy and uh, and with my family at the moment and helping mum and dad. <laughs> well, we're coming to your last choice, which is your possession on Five of My Life, and you have chosen Mildred, my cantankerous combi now i think i know um the story behind this but could you please assume that we don't know anything about it and explain yes she's pretty symbolic i think i've always loved combis despite my father saying that they were incredibly impractical particularly for a person like myself who really doesn't have any sort of mechanical or any practical skills actually other than writing stories to be perfectly honest nigel but I, when I was leaving the ABC after about uh, 19 years and I took a voluntary redundancy, I just made some little inquiries as to whether this dream combi was out there and I found Mildred. It's been an up and down a journey, I think, with Mildred. The first two or three years, you were never quite sure if you were going to get to your destination, but I've, now that we're at the point that I've pretty much changed every single part of her and got out of my system the impractical things like 
putting uh, diesel into the petrol tank on one famous holiday up to Rainbow Bay. That did that did not go well. So um, she's actually, after that colonoscopy, she's been working really well. Isn't she the vehicle that takes you on your fabulous wandering journey? She does. And she's become a bit of a mobile studio. So I came up with that logo and that description for myself to try and encompass all the different things that I do and the wandering aspect of traveling around the country there's nothing that I love better than just jumping in Mildred and seeing where I end up one of my favorite stories was just ending up at the Umundi Hotel and talking to the publican there and finding out that she founded this orphanage in Nepal and then found out that the, the orphanage was actually well that the children weren't orphans and so she had to disband that but she founded another charity to try and reunite them with their parents I mean honestly Nigel stories are everywhere and I love meeting people and just giving them the license and the ability to tell you the insights from their life they're endlessly fascinating yeah wonderful well I I, I thoroughly recommend where should people go to check out your your work just your your website Yes, yes. If you go to nantaxton.com.au, you'll find my Wandering Journal website. But I've also got a sub stack that you can uh, go and have a look at my Streets of Your Town podcast and, and the history of that. I've just had my 100th episode, so that's exciting. And it's wonderful to, to be in a country where we can tell these stories and to become part of the, the fabric of of storytelling in this nation. Well, three final questions for you, Nance. One, uh, is there anyone who you just can't feel empathy with? I know one of your skills mm. and biggest strengths is you are a very empathetic person who, who <laughs> but you, you do lift people up and give the, the unheard a voice, which requires lots of empathy for you. But mm. secretly, just between us two, <laughs> is there anyone or group who you think, do you know what, Sodom, <laughs> um, yeah, it's a, that's a challenging one. Thank you, Nigel, to contemplate that. If I'm honest, I think I find arrogance really difficult. I find uh, arrogant storytellers uh, or subjects really hard and I've got to kind of discipline myself. But I think there is a, a discipline in journalism that you, you can tell the stories and it's sometimes really important to tell the stories of people that you have zero empathy with. And uh, that's when you need to have your wonderful senior journo tribe around you to give you advice on how to shake off really the, the, the effects of some of the, the trauma of some of those stories. It's not always an, an easy job, but that doesn't mean that it's not important. You dodged the question. Who are the groups? <laughs> uh I think I'd find it pretty hard to do stories in Russia right now. It would be really difficult, but then I, I just admire anyone who's a foreign correspondent and trying to wade their way through through that mire, or even Donald Trump at this particular point in time. This is so much, you know, so much obnoxious, difficult content in there, and it's really hard to empathise and to figure out what their motivations are and whether. Uh, you're feeding the beast by reporting on it or whether you're actually helping. That that I would find pretty difficult. What bit of advice would you give your younger self? To be patient with myself, to not think that I had to have it all figured out uh, and to have faith that I would become the journalist that I dreamed I would be. That I, I think I just thought that that would be an impossible dream. Uh, just be patient and know that it's all coming together from the cadetship with 
Quest newspapers to getting my my first job at the ABC and moving out to the outback and uh, out to Port Augusta. That was just the most pivotal move I ever made. I think I didn't realise how much courage I had to move to a place that where I knew nobody in a state where I knew nobody. So I'd just say to that young Nance, you you'll be fine. Yep, you you'll get some curveballs and you will surprise yourself at how well you cope with that. Stay the course. And, and you, you've, you're just getting started. I, I, I can see nothing but great things <laughs> a, ahead for you and your work. Um, the sixth and last question, who would you like to hear on Five My Life next and why? That was a really tricky one too. Thank you, Nigel. You can't um, choose two like I'm your not, film and book and song. I have chosen Delvine Cockatoo Collins, who is a beautiful Indigenous artist from Minjerabar, Stradbroke Island. And she has been one of those wonderful people who I've seen at pivotal moments in my life. I don't even know if she knows how pivotal they've been, but she's an incredibly talented artist who uh, did a lot of the artwork for the Commonwealth Games. And um, she's just one of those people that when I talk to her, I want to spend more time with her. So I hope you find that too, Nigel. Oh, Brent, do you think she'll come on? I think she would. Yeah. Yeah, I've done a few interviews with her over the years. Wonderful. Nance Haxon, thank you so much for coming on uh, Five My Life and sharing your stories. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you, Nigel. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you follow Five of My Life, you might enjoy my latest book, Smart, Stupid and 60. In it, I write about a number of the issues discussed on the show. It's the 20-year follow-on from my first book, Fat, Forty and Fired. If you have any feedback on the book or suggestions for the show, please get in touch via my website, nigelmarsh.com. I was going to surprise you with a story because I, I always challenge myself to talk to one person oh, wow. who, who knows the person. Yeah. My intent on this is only to make people look good, feel comfortable. I've got no interest in a gotcha or anything, but, so, but I yes. talk to people and I, and I explain that. I said, I'm calling you because you know Gillard or you know Will Anderson. Yeah, and, yeah. And I'm going to interview them on Five Alive. So what, what would you want to tell me if I was doing that? Blah, blah, blah. Anyway, I spoke to this person who was a very, very good friend of yours who was <laughs> hilarious. Well, I had, I've got so much stuff. But, but one of them, it, it, she was extraordinarily nice about you. She said, <laughs> she goes, she's wonderful, but she has the loudest voice of anyone I know. It's so and true. And I can't take her to small restaurants. <laughs> <laughs> true because everyone ends up looking at us 